Believe it or not. Strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. Unbelievable? Believe it. Ripley's Believe It or Not. Incomparable, inimitable, illimitable, inestimable, introducer of immeasurable, incalculable, incredible impossibilities. Welcome to Ripley's Believe It or Not cast, the podcast that brings you deep into the strange, the bizarre, and the unusual. I'm Ryan. And I'm Brent. So Ryan, this week, I feel like we're taking our listeners on a journey that Robert Ripley himself would have been proud of. The first thing I saw was a jaguar head coming coming out of the ground attached to what looked like a stone throne. And uh, it was, in fact, a, a seat of power used by sh- shamans in ceremonies where they probably taking hallucinogenic drugs would try to tap into the power of the jaguar. Right, so whenever I think of Robert Ripley, I picture him out in the wild, out in the world discovering new lands, learning about new cultures and educating us on what he'd found. Well, we're fortunate enough today to feature another adventurer and his exploits a modern day Ripley, if you will Douglas Preston His life was already pretty incredible before he set out on the adventure we're about to tell. Uh, His father studied anthropology at Harvard and worked with the Navajo, while his aunt was a famous underwater archaeologist working off the coasts of Italy and Greece. Preston grew up with adventure all around him, so it was natural then that when he graduated college, he would gravitate toward writing about these topics. Uh, For decades, he's been writing novels, nonfiction, uh, stories for The New Yorker and Smithsonian Magazine. He's covered serial killers in Italy. He's ridden horseback for a thousand miles across the American Southwest, tracing Coronado's quest for the legendary Lost Cities of Gold. That's why in 2012, he was chosen to write about the exploits of a team searching for something called the White City, or the City of the Monkey God, in the heavy rainforests of Honduras, one of the most dangerous places in the world. So here's our interview with Douglas Preston, who tells the story of how a team used a radical new technology to find a lost world, and the price they all paid for doing that. Today on the Notcast... Come with us to the dense jungles of Honduras, where the snakes are huge and aggressive, there are drug cartels and jaguars roaming the area, and there is disease. This is not a place for the faint of heart. So strap in as Preston takes us on a wild ride and first tells us a bit about the legend of the White City. I'm Douglas Preston, and I'm a novelist and a nonfiction writer. I write about archaeology and paleontology for the New Yorker magazine and also in books. And I'm the author of The Lost City of the Monkey God, which is my latest nonfiction book. I've uh, worked at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. I've taught writing at Princeton University. And I now live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I am a freelance writer full time. Actually, the uh, search for this lost city goes back uh, you know, over a hundred years. Okay. They were, in fact, it goes back to the time of Cortez when he recorded in a letter to the emperor uh, that there were stories of these great kingdoms and in the interior of Honduras that he thought were very reliable, but he was never able to go in and, and find them uh, because, you know, this is tremendously rugged country. It's mountains, steep, steep mountains, some over a mile high, covered with some of the thickest jungle in the world. And in the interior valleys of these mountains 
they're inaccessible. There's not even any navigable rivers flowing out of them or into them. So you, you, it's just almost impossible to get in there. But uh, so from the time of Cortez, there are these rumors and legends about cities of gold and all this other stuff. And then in the 1930s, uh, the Museum of the American Indian mounted uh, four very serious expeditions to try to find this lost city. Uh, it's, this, this area is, all, is west of Copan, or sorry, east of, Co of Copan, and there was every reason to believe there might be more Mayan cities there, or at least other large cities. Uh, and these expeditions heard about this legend of Ciudad Blanca, the white city, sometimes called the lost city of the monkey god, where there was supposed to be this pyramid with a with a statue of a monkey and, you know, just really spectacular uh, city. And uh, so they sent these expeditions out there who heard all these rumors. And finally, the last one, led by a fellow named Theodore Mord, actually reported back. He reported back that he found the lost city. But he wasn't going to say where it was because uh, he didn't want looters to go after it. Uh -huh. And this this was in 1941, and unfortunately, World War II occurred, and he was not able to go back, and then he committed suicide. And so the location of this city disappeared with him. However, his journals, when I was writing this book, I was able to find his journals, which had never been read or published, had been closely held by his family. And when I read them, I realized why they'd been closely held. It's because this whole thing was a, uh, uh, a fraud mm. that this guy, Theodore Mord, wasn't looking for a lost city. He had an ulterior motive. He had an, something else he was looking for. And uh, he found it. He found gold, a uh, major gold strike. That's, that's what he was really doing. And uh, all the artifacts he brought back claiming to have come from the lost city were stuff that he picked up on the coast from, you know, buying it from looters and archaeological looters and people like that. Mm. So it turned out that it was a total fraud. But the city itself um, did, you know, um, the legends of that city are not fraudulent. So that brings us to a man named Steve Elkins, who since the 1990s had been trying to find the White City. He'd even gone to the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena, California, to see if he could use some satellite imagery to look down onto the jungle. They identified three targets that looked promising, which only made him more excited. Finally, in 2012, he learned about LIDAR, or Light Detection and Ranging, which can see through the jungle foliage and map the ground beneath in great detail. That's right. It's a... It's a technology where they take this million dollar machine, it's mounted in a plane, takes up the whole interior of the plane practically, and it fires 125,000 laser pulses a second into the foliage below. Mm. Now these laser, this is a harmless infrared laser, but they don't penetrate anything. But it turns out that even in the thickest jungle, there are little gaps in the leaves. If you lie down in these jungles and look up, you will still see bits and pieces of blue sky and these billions and billions of laser pulses find those holes and the return, they're actually able to figure out the surface of the ground and map it under this very thick tree cover uh, using very powerful software. What you get is what's called a point cloud, which is every reflection that the laser that, that comes back from the laser beams. 
Now, 99% of these are reflecting off leaves and tree trunks and everything else. So it's a cloud, three-dimensional cloud. But using software, you can remove all the points being reflected from above and just keep the points that hit the ground. And I was part of that expedition. And I'll never forget, we were flying this plane out of the island of Roatan, which is off the coast of Honduras, into the interior of the country, uh, where it was mapping these three valleys. And the first valley it mapped was T1. The data was uploaded to Houston. It took three days to fly over this valley and map it. So the data was uploaded to Houston to the National Center for Airborne Laser Mapping, which was co-sponsoring this project. And when the results came back, it was absolutely incredible. You did not have to be an archeologist to see the pyramids, the plazas, mm. the roads, the terracing, the completely modified human landscape. You saw a city underneath that canopy, basically. That's right. I mean, you know, the tallest Mayan pyramids are, are not, not as tall as, as the treetops of this jungle, which are 150 feet up and triple canopy. So it's very dense. So it was amazing. And th that, that was in 2012. And so then it took three years to organize the ground expedition in oh, there. Wow. Uh, we had to work with the Honduran government. Um, this had to be done, you know, properly with all the permits and everything else. So they had to get permission from the Honduran Air Force, and that wasn't the only problem. According to Preston, nearly 80% of the world's cocaine is shipped through the region, so there's drug cartels in their armies, as well as the DEA monitoring them and the American Air Force monitoring all of that. Preston had been following Elkin's work for years, so in 2012, Steve called the writer and asked him to come along. They were going to fly over the area and look for a lost city. Preston expected little to nothing from the trip. In 2012, Steve called me up and said, well, we, we got this LiDAR machine. We've raised a million dollars. We're going to search these three target areas. I mean, to be honest with you, I didn't think they were going to find anything. Oh, wow. I almost didn't go down there. I thought this is going to be a waste <laughs> of my time. They're not going to find a lost city. People don't find lost cities in the 21st century. But I did go down and I was absolutely astonished. I was probably the most surprised of all of them to, to see that they found a city in T1 and they found another city in T3. Wow. That city has not even been explored yet. That's in a really crazy rough area. Mm. Uh, but to, to, to explore. Well, it's, it's called ground truthing. In archaeology, you, you have to ground truth something. You have to go there mm. on the ground and see what's there. So, Because um, a lot of stuff is seen from the air, and then you go on the ground and you realize it's not what you thought. So, um, well, we worked with the Honduran Air Force, and we were supported by the president of Honduras, who was very interested in the project because he felt it was something positive to present to the world about Honduras instead of just the uh, drug, you know, story of drugs and murder that there was the world reads about Honduras. He, he thought, rightly so, this is something we can show the world that we're, that we're um, you know, a country with a history and, uh, uh, and a very rich history. So, uh, so we flew in and then we had support from National Geographic, a little bit of support from them. Uh, and, and so forth. So we flew in uh, on hel in helicopters. They cleared a landing zone. We had Honduran Special Forces soldiers with us. 
And we had three British ex-SAS jungle warfare specialists who sort of organized the expedition. Mm. And then there were the scientists from our team, which were 10 PhD scientists in various disciplines. We had an anthropologist. We had several archaeologists. We had an engineer. Uh, we had a geologist. Uh, we had uh, ethnobotanists with us to because we, they wanted to study what kind of plants might have been growing in this area. Think about it. No human had seen this place in hundreds of years. The animals weren't afraid of humans because they didn't know what humans were. Jaguars and pumas and huge snakes would roam their camp during the night. It was very much like the lost world where King Kong was found. Well, at night, there were big animals that would move through, cracking the, not silently, just crashing through near us. And there were uh, uh, pumas that were growling and purring as they came through camp and sniffing around. Uh, there was a, a jaguar that made a, that, that strange jaguar sound. Um, and we had peccaries coming around and birds, you know, kind of jungle fowl walking around on the floor of the jungle. It was pretty amazing. And, and snakes. snakes. <laughs> yeah. Snakes. Tell, well, tell us, tell us about those. Well, the first night, uh, there were only, uh, a few of us had gotten in. They, it takes a while to get everybody in. They could only use a very small helicopter because of the problem of, um, of, of the size of the landing zone is very tight. So they could only bring in two people at a time. So there were only, I think, six of us that first night. And I was walking at night back to my hammock. And here was this gigantic fair to lance coiled up in striking position following me. I'd walked right by it. It's a big snake, and it's also the most poisonous snake the most deadly snake in the new world. It's killed more people than any other snake in the new world. Its bite is something like 600 times more powerful than the bite of a rattlesnake or venom. And so, it's, um, it's right there ready to get you. Well, it's, it was very aroused and really alert and really pissed off. And they're also aggressive. They'll, they'll chase you and bite you and then chase you down and bite you a second time. It's not like a rattlesnake that just wants to get away and only bite you out of fear and, and so forth. This snake is, is, is quite aggressive. So I called out, hey, you guys, there's a big snake over here. And so these three British guys came over along with the other couple of members of the expedition. And he said, Woody, who was the head of the team, said, I'm going to move him. Keep your lights on him. So he cut a fork stick pinned the snake with it and the snake just exploded just striking everywhere and the venom was flying through the air you could see his his fangs are more than an inch long we measured them afterwards and so he worked the stick up behind the snake's head and then he grabbed it with his hand and the snake was twisting around trying to bite his hand and expelled venom all over the back of his hand and he wrestled the snake to the ground. It was bigger than he was and cut off its head. And even then the snake continued to fight him <laughs> and the headless snake tried to crawl away. And the, the, the snake, the snake's head continued to snap and bite and spew venom until he stuck his knife through it Good and pinned yes. it to the ground. And then he had all this venom all over his hand. He got up and he 
washed his hands and he said, Nothing like that to concentrate the mind, is there? And then there was the rain, just relentless. I mean, it's a rainforest. You'd expect there to be a lot of rain, but this is relentless rain. There's nothing, really nothing you can do to keep dry. And then the mosquitoes settle in. So these are mosquitoes who had never encountered humans before, and they are feasting like Thanksgiving on humans for the first time. So the bites from them and other insects are constant. They swarm and burrow into your flesh, making a home for as long as you're there. So I just... You just live in the rain. But I realized that I was completely covered with these bugs, these chiggers who were eating, they were biting me and burrowing into me. It was horrible. Mm. They're tiny, tiny little things. You can hardly see them like a grain of sand. And I'm picking them all off and I realized they're all in my sleeping bag. And, and I had this terrible panic. And then I realized, you know, this is just the way it's going to be. <laughs> so get used to it. Well, I, they, everyone had a job they were doing, and everyone was focused on it, and and uh, so nobody nobody gave me a hard time. I mean, I did ask a lot of questions. Sure. And but the the thing is that we also had a camera crew with us. Oh. And those guys, that was even harder for them. I mean, can you imagine having a having to carry a camera around in the no. pouring rain? It's like being in the shower oh. and trying to keep it dry, and and uh, you know that was tough. So. So I, I wasn't the only one sort of in your face, in their faces, trying to get Got the it. story. There were these camera guys, too. And that's quite a, quite a good uh, documentary. If you have a chance to see, if anyone listening has a chance to see it, it hasn't been publicly released yet. But it should be uh, maybe uh, later or early next year, it should be available on Netflix or something. The scientists know where the city is because of the LIDAR maps. So they know where to go and they head there the next day. But Preston said it was anticlimactic. You couldn't see anything. Standing only 20 feet from the base of a pyramid, you couldn't see it because of the dense trees and foliage. But the second day was better. At the base of a pyramid, the group found a collection of stone sculptures that had been left as some kind of offering. When they excavated the area, they found almost 500 pieces. That, that was incredible. The first thing I saw was a jaguar head coming, coming out of the ground attached to what looked like a stone throne. And uh, it was, in fact, a, a seat of power used by sh shamans uh, for, in ceremonies where they, probably taking hallucinogenic drugs, would try to tap into the power of the jaguar. Uh, so that, that, that was uh, amazing to see that. And of course, as soon as How we were cool. excited and looking at all these, these things, here comes a fair to Lance out from under a log. And oh. we all had to retreat. And the archaeologists <laughs> were saying, I'm not going to excavate that. No, we're not going to go in there. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, it's almost like they're protecting it. You know, they're protecting their area. Yes, exactly. Weird. So uh, let's ask, let me ask about LIDAR real quick. And uh, is this something that I can kind of imagine that maybe some archaeologists or uh, anthropologists or historians or, or and the like might not be thrilled with this new technology? Is that... Is that uh, is, is there is there a, is it kind of a polarizing kind of thing that's going on? It it has been polarizing. The uh, f this expedition in particular was very polarizing to archaeologists because the discovery of the city was made not by archaeologists but by engineers, 
and that really upset some of the old guard archaeologists who've said this is, you know, this is not how archaeology should be done. Um, and uh, so there was some criticism over that. Uh, there was criti- You can, you know, go on the internet and see some of this stuff. You know, there's sniping and blogs about criticizing the expedition <laughs> and claiming that we hadn't found what we'd found. And and I remember I called up one of these skeptics and I said, "Look, let me let me email you the uh, lidar images of the city." Because she was saying to me, "Yeah, you don't know what you're looking at. You, have, you haven't found anything of significance." And so I emailed her the images, and she came back at me and she said. Uh, well, it's true, you have found a city. And then you know, she started talking about how wonderful the city was. And then she went right back into a tirade on, this is not how archaeology should be done, mm. uh, and so on and so forth. So. so change is hard for a lot of people. But one of the other reasons some archaeologists were, were kind of envious of those who use LIDAR is because it's so expensive. It costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to use it for one shot. And most archaeologists, of course, can't afford that. So there's a, a bit of a natural jealousy there. In fact, part of Elkin's funding actually came from a Hollywood movie producer. But Preston says there's a new generation of archaeologists who are welcoming the new technologies, particularly because when they use it, it doesn't harm the actual site. You can map an entire city without stepping foot in it. Um, it would be another year before anyone started excavating the Honduran site. That's when they discovered the real problem with the area. It was a hot zone for a horrifying disease. Yes, and uh, now we knew that there were plenty of diseases to worry about in this jungle. Okay. And many of them have no vaccines. There's no protection from them for dengue fever, chikungunya, there's malaria, mm. which you have some protection for. But, um, and, but there was no idea that, there was, that this was a hot zone of a certain disease. And after we came out of the jungle, you know, you're covered in bug bites and they all, it takes about six weeks for them to go away. And during that time, there was a bug bite uh, that some of us had that didn't go away. In fact, it grew and grew and it turned into a lesion. And it looked like it was horribly infected. And when we went to the hospital, they said, oh, you have an infection and they give us antibiotics, which didn't do anything. And so the National Geographic photographer who was with us was the one who figured it out. He sent around an email and he said, hey, hey, folks, I think I think we have leishmaniasis. And he sent us some pictures from the web that he picked up that showed what looked like what we had. And so we went to the National Institutes of Health, which is the premier institution studying this disease. And they confirmed that we did all indeed have leishmaniasis. It was a very serious kind of it, the worst kind, unfortunately. And so they, we were all enrolled in a study. It was actually quite interesting uh, because the NIH is trying to work on a vaccine against leishmaniasis. So they've been, you know, they're really anxious to study people who have it. And uh, so we all underwent this really rigorous treatment regime. And, uh, you know, here we are. So tell us what leishmaniasis can do to you. Well, it's a, it's a parasite. It's not a virus or a bacterium. It's actually a parasite. And it's transmitted by the sand fly, just the way malaria is transmitted by mosquitoes. So you can't catch leishmaniasis from a person. 
Uh, you can only catch it from the bite of a sand fly, which is also bitten an infected animal, which is called the host animal. So what the leishmania parasite does is this, this type that we had, um, eventually, you know, it causes this horrible lesion, it grows, uh, and then eventually it moves to your face and it eats away at your nose and your lips until they fall off, creating a hole in your, in your uh, face and then you die. So this is... I would not, I would definitely not recommend your <laughs> listeners to look up, uh, to Google leishmaniasis and look at the pictures. Don't do it. This is the most horrific part of the story. I mean, really, this is just terrifying. It turns out the disease goes to the face first because the parasite doesn't like the heat of the human body. It likes cooler areas of which the face is one. So two thirds of their group actually came down with the disease and they have to go to the National Institutes of Health for experimental treatment. Preston is lucky in a sense. He fares well and responds well to the drug, but here's the rub. The disease never goes away. They will always have this disease, a little souvenir from the jungle. I did, yeah. I, I tolerated the drug. They use a, a drug called amphotericin B, which is a very powerful drug. It's actually mostly used uh, for patients who are dying of AIDS who have fungal infections of the blood. Mm. It's a drug of last resort. But it's the only drug, there's, a, there's actually a new drug that just came out, but at, at the time, there was a, this was the only drug that was really considered to be an effective treatment against leishmaniasis. So we had to take that. It's, you get an infusion, you know, eight hours a day for a week, and uh, they have to monitor you very carefully because it, the, the side effects are so extreme that the drug itself can kill you or make you or damage your kidneys permanently, so they have to be very, very careful. Well, everyone responded, you know, somewhat differently. Uh, uh, the the NIH was able to get everyone's leishmaniasis under control. Mm. Uh, the Honduran chief Honduran archaeologist, though, was really badly um, affected by it and, and was seriously injured by it. Um, and then there's one of our group who's been fighting it for years now and is still, you know, having, you know, still struggling with it um uh. the outward symptoms of it you know it's, it's it's one of these diseases that once they get it under control your immune system takes over and keeps it under control and it only comes back if something happens to your immune system like you have or undergoing chemotherapy for cancer or something happens to compromise your immune system and then the leash will often come back is there ever a time when you thought man i I, I'm not sure that was worth it or, or I don't know if I was going to make it out of this. Uh, did you ever have that thought? Well, there, there, there were times when I thought, boy, this is really a difficult. <laughs> um, this was a difficult assignment, you know, so to speak. Uh, but at the same time, I've been, you know, covering, I've been writing stories similar to this for a long time. And I've, 
done things that were much more dangerous than than going into the jungle. So as wild as his story has been, it seems that the future of LIDAR may be even more incredible. Preston explained to us that the chief archaeologist of the expedition, Chris Fisher of Colorado State University, has just launched a project called the Earth Archive, where he wants to LIDAR the entire surface of the planet. We're facing tremendous changes that are going to happen to the earth. I mean, with global warming, with sea level rise, with the clear cutting and burning of the Amazon rainforest, there's a lot of stuff that's going to be destroyed. And so his idea is to, is to catalog and capture for posterity a picture of the earth in very great detail right now. And he's already started this. He's just He's going to start with the Amazon. It's going to take $15 million to, to LIDAR the entire Amazon basin. And he's just uh, started. He just got a donation. And he's going to be uh, start uh, the project in the Colombian area of the Amazon. And it's going to be really an extremely important project. And I'm sure you'll be hearing a lot about it in the future. That's incredible. And can you imagine what he's going to find? Well, in the Amazon in particular, that, that area is, is very difficult to explore and it's, it gets very difficult to see anything even if you're there. And the uh, LIDAR is going to show, uh, everyone is, the archaeologists realized that the Amazon rainforest was very heavily settled in prehistoric times. There were great civilizations that lived in there and uh, they will uncover their remains with LIDAR. So what do we have next for the lost city of the monkey god what uh, what's going to happen there the hondurans have been uh, working slowly excavating it they built a museum outside of catacombas and an anthropological laboratory uh, to study the artifacts and it's really a way to help train a new generation of hondurans uh, into archaeology because uh, you know honduras is an incredibly rich place there's so many incredible archaeological riches and yet most of the archaeologists who work in Hondurans, Honduras are Americans or British or, or Mexican. So it's, it, I think, and then they're continuing to excavate. Students are out there. The problem is that, you know, this, the valley is a hot zone of disease mm. and uh, so that there's always this danger of, of leishmaniasis and unfortunately quite a few of the archaeologists working there have gotten it. And so the Americans said, we're not going to send any more archaeologists there because it's too dangerous. LIDAR will also become a bigger part of our lives in the not-too-distant future, Preston tells us. Self-driving cars will use it as part of their technology to see the other cars around them because it has a much higher resolution than radar. Most of these new cars have LIDAR machines on the roof, which shoot out invisible laser beams to see everything around them. Near the end of this fascinating interview, we asked Preston if he, like us, had ever read any of the Ripley's books growing up, because it just seemed like something that would have been of interest to him. Well, you know, it's, it's funny you should mention that. I had a whole shelf of those books, those little paperback books of Ripley's Believe It or Not. Uh-huh. I loved those books. I mean, I used to read them. They were just, oh, they were so much, they were so interesting and these tremendously, you know, fascinating stories that I think that did influence me quite a bit. That's a, it's funny you should mention that because that was a very important part of my childhood, reading those 
Ripley's Believe It or Not. Anything that stands out? Was there a favorite story or was it too long ago to reach back that far? Oh, I, I remember a bunch of stories. I remember one where they, this, uh, a village in India, suddenly it started raining frogs out of the sky. Um, and, uh, re- you know, that was a huge mystery. Later oh, yeah. on, I realized as I, when I became an adult that what had probably happened was there was a typhoon or a water spout that sucked a bunch of frogs up into the sky, you know, like a, a water spout is a tornado that occurs over water and it sucks sure. water up. And that that's probably what happened. That, that actually is, has been documented. Um, there was another Ripley's about all these stones falling out of the sky that then as I grew up, I realized, well, that, that was probably a, a chondritic meteorite that exploded high in the atmosphere and showered an area with stones, small stones. That That is something that happened in, in uh, Mexico, um, you know, about 20 years ago. So, yeah, so, so a lot of those stories uh, had, their, had a basis in truth or, or were true. So it seems to me, you know, like a couple of things that I take from this story, you know, the, the first thing, obviously, this horrific disease that they're always going to have to deal with now because of it, but it seems like everybody's doing okay. Uh, but the other thing about this is just the technology aspect of it and what can be done in the future uh, with LIDAR, especially if you LIDAR map the entire surface of the planet, you know, uh, like what could be found? I think even, uh, I think even, uh, Preston talks about, there could be hundreds more civilizations that we don't even know about that are just lying there under the canopy of this dense jungle, uh, that could be found in the future. That's kind of amazing to me. Yeah. Uh, the other aspect that, that I think about with this is, so it's often almost always the case where, um, you hear archaeologists say that their profession is nothing like, like what you see in the Indiana Jones movies, um, but it kind of is. Like this one, this story is. It's at well, least as far as the dramatic arc. Right, of the story. right. Until we get to the or not of this episode, and we talk about how it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we'll, we're going <laughs> to completely um, go against everything I'm saying here in a minute, but. Uh, but not all. No, I understand what you're saying. I mean, the adventure aspect of it, the the discovery aspect the of it. The face melting aspect of it. The, the the fighting Nazis part. Oh, wait. Wait, no, that's probably not. But but yeah, the face melting aspect, it really does line up. That's uh, I didn't realize that until you just said that. Yeah. But in all seriousness, all of those things is what makes it a Ripley story and what makes it interesting to us. Exactly. So we'd like to thank Douglas Preston for taking the time to share his story. And remember to look for the documentary of The Lost City of the Monkey God, which should be coming to a streaming service near you sometime soon. So Ryan, uh, Douglas mentioned reading in a Ripley's book about how it's rained frogs. You can actually check out our website. Ripley's.com. And read that story, as well as many others about mysterious different types of rain. Believe it or not. Fish golf balls. There was actually a time in 1892 when it rained mussels over Germany. Find that and other amazing stories at ripleys.com. And now, Ryan, that brings us to the or not section of the show where we put modern day facts to the test because you can't always believe 
what you hear. In this episode, we've learned a lot about modern day archaeology and how, incredibly, there are still places in this world that we have yet to discover. But one other thing we learned from Mr. Preston is that we don't want to call any modern day archaeologists Indiana Jones, because the way the movies portray archaeologists isn't even close to the real thing. William Parkinson, an archaeologist at the Field Museum and the University of Illinois at Chicago, said as much to the Chicago Tribune in 2014. Indiana Jones kind of sucks as an archaeologist, he said. Here's the deal. No one hunts treasure to donate it to a museum, he said, and no one just grabs an artifact and runs away. None of it happens today, and none of it happened during the time period in which the movies were set. Even at the turn of the last century, with the excavation of things like King Tut's tomb, it was still done under the premise that you're trying to learn about the past, Parkinson told the newspaper. Secondly, there aren't any booby-trapped temples or tombs out there. The artifacts archaeologists want to find are just buried and need to be excavated, which takes a long, long time. Parkinson went on to say that much of his job is spent in front of a computer, writing out grant applications, not swinging a bullwhip or fighting Nazis. Once again, it seems the movies have embellished the truth. But I think we can say that sometimes, like in today's Notcast, the truth really is stranger and more entertaining than fiction. So the next time an archaeologist uses LIDAR flying over a supposed lost city, we at Ripley's will be there to share the story. Believe it or not. Ripley's Believe It or Not cast is produced by myself, Ryan Clark, and Sabrina Seek. Our executive producer is Amanda Joyner, and I edit the show. The Notcast is recorded at the historic Herzog Studio, home of the nonprofit Cincinnati USA Music Heritage Foundation. The Notcast intro theme was put together by Colton Cruz, and our ending theme song is by the band Wussy. If you like this episode, if you like the show, subscribe, tell your friends, and please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you have comments, questions, or ideas, email us at notcast at ripleys.com or tweet at ripleys. And be sure to catch the Notcast next week for a special Halloween episode as we travel to Louisville, Kentucky and take a tour of allegedly one of the most haunted places in the world. So just what happened at the old Waverly Hills Sanatorium and why did Ryan get so freaked out and so scared when he toured the site? Find out next week on Ripley's Believe It or Not cast. And it's